0: What's up guys? Welcome back to the Digital Bound Podcast. So with me today, I have Sonny and we have a special guest. It's a fantastic person. He's a, a blogger, a little bit of a podcaster, a little bit of a YouTuber. His name's Aaron. Um, so Aaron, you're, I, I guess you could call you a, an influencer, right?
1: Uh, sure. That's, that's a fair assessment. Uh, I I usually start with the podcaster. I've done over 200 episodes of the show. And I think that's really, uh, my most intimate touch point with my audience. So I, I, I usually lead with podcaster, but yeah, absolutely. If I, I'm definitely hopefully influencing some people. It's not, uh, you know, at the, at the top echelons, but influence is definitely something I'm trying to cultivate.
0: Okay. That's a, that's one way to put it. Um, So you want to tell them a little bit about yourself, like a little bit of your socials and then what you do a little longer?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, So in addition to podcasting and occasionally making some videos and blogging a little bit, uh, I am the VP of sales for a SaaS startup called TopScore. We are an integrated solution for sports organizations to manage their entire web presence. So as you can imagine, sports organizations, uh, they need to be able to schedule games, they need to be able to register players, uh, manage those players and teams, uh, do all sorts of stuff with their website, and we give them the tools to do that in kind of all-in-one package. So uh, that's that's one hat that I wear in addition to the podcasting. And then I'm also a semi-professional Ultimate Frisbee player captained the pittsburgh thunderbirds the last two years in the american ultimate disc league uh, and before that won two national championships at the university of pittsburgh so uh ultimate frisbee definitely um you know, kind of like podcasting, not something that is, you know, everyone's doing and not super mainstream. Uh, but within a community, it's a really kind of rabid, excited, passionate group of people. And, uh, that's, that's what I'm all about. I'm about connecting with communities that have that sort of passion.
0: Well, you, you, I would say podcasting is a little more mainstream than, um, ultimate Frisbee. not, sure, not an Ultimate Frisbee, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But even Bernie Sanders well, think- is doing one yeah everyone's yeah, both, got one now
2: <laughs> yeah both leon and i's like knowledge of uh, ultimate is just with MKphD who's like a tech youtuber and you said that you've played him before right
1: yeah i've actually played him a couple times once in college and i think two times in club if i remember correctly matched up on each other um, he's pretty good he's 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 a pretty good player um and this year, he actually is playing in the American Ultimate Disc League for Philadelphia. So I'm playing for Pittsburgh. He's for Philadelphia. Unfortunately, that that is different divisions. The boundaries drawn right through um, Central huh. Pennsylvania. So uh, maybe see in playoffs. We'll see. But uh, best of luck to him in the season. And obviously, love the uh, stuff that he's doing on YouTube.
0: So, so is like ultimate frisbee, like soccer, like what sport can you relate it to? Something that I can like get an idea of it.
1: Sure. So it's a field sport and there's two end zones very much like football. Uh, You're throwing a disc and everyone has the ability to touch the disc and throw it, but you cannot run with it if it's in your hands. So think about like when someone picks up their dribble in basketball, all they can do is pivot. That's what it looks like when you're actually holding the disc. And then you're trying to work it down the field, sometimes incrementally, sometimes with one really long throw. And if you catch it in the end zone, you get a point. So, uh, in, in the pro game, it's played for time. You try to mass as many points as you possibly can. Once you score, you throw it to the other team and they get to play offense. So there's a lot of back and forth, like you score, I score, you score, I score. And if someone can manage to throw it to the other team, take it away and then score, that's a break actually kind of similar to tennis where breaks are really the defining, um, statistic of who wins a game.
0: Okay, so it's a little bit of a mixed match of sports, but it sounds fairly easy to follow.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We have lots of people who you know, come to their first game, and the the common refrains are, I had no idea how fast paced it was. Um, the throws are really amazing because even if actually it's it's kind of a, a cool thing where if you aren't familiar with the sport, if you aren't a proficient thrower of a Frisbee, some of the throws, you know, for, for lack of a better term, look like magic. You can bend a disc like around a defender. You can make it float. You can throw it way out and have it hang. And that creates a much more dynamic um, offensive situation where if you think about like throwing the football around and throwing a basketball around, it's very linear. It's very easy to track, like even if you're not an expert, exactly where the ball's going as it's in the air. Whereas with the disc, there's people, you know, oh, I thought it was going left and it like tailed right at the end and the that's that's kind of where the mastery comes in the players who can read a disc which is seeing it in the air and seeing which um exactly which direction it's going that is a really you know top skill to have and you can do some dynamic things with it
0: okay that's really interesting yeah like
2: how do you get into something like that because i again it's such like a niche sport um the first time i ever heard of it was like from a KHPHD, so How did you like personally get into it and how do most people you think get into uh, Ultimate?
1: So the the most common way is just you have a friend who brings the disc around and they start throwing it with you. And then you eventually kind of learn the game or pick up the game and start going to like some local pickup or tournaments or leagues or something like that. My story is a little bit different because I was very fortunate, I would say. That there was already a pretty well-established ultimate frisbee community at my high school. So my background before um, ultimate was I played soccer for ten years, um, but was like the kind of the kid who played every sport under the sun, was just bouncing from football to wrestling to basketball to volleyball, literally all over the place. And the family called uh, their, their last name are the Thorns um, were kind of building a team at my high school. Uh, That was actually nationally ranked before I even started playing and their father sat on the board for USA Ultimate. They'd been throwing literally since they were like one or two years old, um, which doesn't make any sense. They, They were like rolling the disc around once they were, you know, three or four, they could throw. And they just kind of brought people together. And, and like for me, I couldn't really throw. I couldn't do those magical. Um, I didn't have that control of the disc yet. But I was pretty big. I was pretty fast. And they basically said, you know, if you start on the side here and you start running as fast as you can towards the end zone, we'll rip it, you know, 50 yards. And you can just go run it down kind of like a wide receiver. And so that's, that was my initial start. And then just being a, a soccer player, I kind of had an intuitive feel for the field how to play defense, how to track my man. And from there, it just kind of took off. We won uh, the city championship. We played for the Eastern United States Championships in high school. And then in college, the University of Pittsburgh once again already had a very well-established program. Uh, one of the older Thorn brothers was there, along with a ton of other talent. And so I was you know, competing at the national level almost from the jump, just by proxy of the team that I was joining and that's just a a common theme i've tried to chase in every instance in my career which is if you can get in really high performing groups and surround yourself with really talented people you'll inevitably rise to meet that level assuming you're willing to do the work so that's something i've always i've, I've taken away from ultimate and chase in everything that i do
2: yeah for sure it's very cool um that's not like i i like to live by that um kind of motive or goal as well just surrounding myself a bunch of talented people um so i actually leon if you don't mind i want to go back a little bit because i'm new to you aaron watson um but i know that you two met back at south by so i kind of want to learn more about that how you guys met and some of the stuff you maybe talked about
1: yeah it, it was relatively brief we were in the mcdonald's um they had like a vr lounge where they are also giving away burgers and it was my first time ever at south by um and i was just trying to like actually get a handle on where is this technology like like is this is this something that is imminent like you know in two years every single person is going to own a vr headset Uh, is a little further off is it legit and i was just kind of one of one of my goals while i was there was to just try as many headsets as i as i could and hopefully form some sort of opinion for myself uh leon was there he tried it on as well and just happened to i, I mean maybe he could say pick me out of the crowd for uh like a mini interview on my thoughts on it so that, that was that was the extent of it
2: yeah and you actually yeah. you had an episode i think like i was looking through some of the people that you've interviewed um robert scoble i think he was talking about vr on one of your uh, podcast episodes right
1: yeah, that was actually one of my most popular episodes with Robert Scoble. Um, he's he's all in on the VR bandwagon, uh, just beating the drum, sounding the horn. So I know he is. Um, he he's got a lot of perspective to share. That's why I tried to get him on the show, and I know I learned a lot. He was he was just down my throat. You know, you need to be prepared for this right now. If you're in any company, this is the future. Um, and, and, mean that's his style. He is so passionate about this kind of stuff. And if you follow him on Facebook, there's a lot of cool things that he's exploring and learning about. Um, but yeah, my, my whole method is if, if you're not fluent in modern technology, then that's hampering your ability, whether that's in business, whether that's in, you know, serving others, whatever your mission is. Uh, If you don't have fluency in the modern tech, which is a constant process, that's another guest of mine, Kevin Kelly, kind of talks about this constant state of needing to update your literacy and technology because it's changing so fast. We're kind of constant newbies. Um, I I embrace that and just try to stay on top of it as much as I can and know that that's going to serve me in whatever, whatever arena I'm trying to play in.
0: Okay.
2: Yes, okay, so I think we were talking about tech and how you were, you know, with your interview with Robert Scoble, um, how tech kind of influences your life and how,
1: Yeah, my, you know,
2: you, think... you say that it's best to keep up to date with tech, otherwise you get left behind. So my question kind of leading up to that is, do you, do you follow tech and how do you kind of apply it to like podcasting or even like ultimate Frisbee where maybe, maybe use like a Fitbit or something for training or stuff like that?
1: Yeah, well, I've got my Fitbit on right now. Um, I've also, you know, the the learning curve from a technological standpoint on podcasting. Uh, we're recording this on Zencaster right now. It's a, it's occasionally finicky, um, so so occasionally have to um, you know just check in on how to make Zencaster work appropriately and understand voiceover IP. Uh, and then there's the hard the actual hard tech, which is you know I've got my Uh, audio technica atr 2100 microphone i've got my uh presonus audio box i2 here trying to just understand those make sure they're calibrated effectively um and then in the actual editing of the show so you know for for a long time i was recording these on skype and using a a software called pamela and it would condense it all down to one audio file so you couldn't separate the two voices it was all one thing and that's actually how
2: we started as well (laughs) <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So so that's just, you know, a common learning curve. Um, and and now, you know, with Zencast, we get these separate audio files, so you can really tighten stuff up. And all of that is just kind of a constant process of, it, you know, it, 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 there's kind of two ways you go about it. You can go into things and say, like, I need a specific solution to this specific problem. And the internet and YouTube and, and is generally pretty adept at, Giving you that answer to that question, if you if you do a little bit of searching, but then there's also how did you the, come
0: across uh, Zencastr? Then, sorry to interrupt.
1: Sure, how you like uh, I'm that? in a bunch of podcasting Facebook groups, and I I didn't ask the question, but someone asked a similar question of like, you know, I'm Skype has crashed on me, or like this Pamela has crashed on me for the umpteenth time. I'm sick of it. Give me an alternative. And Zencaster was one of the ones that got suggested. Also, I had a I had a someone interview me on Zencaster and I had no idea what it was and I didn't really process it because he kind of had some issues the first time like getting it set up for the interview so I was like ah, eh, that must not be that good um, but then you know after playing around with a little bit more I love the two audio files I just kind of found, found it more intuitive to use and decided to make that switch so was, I think it was like a, a Facebook group suggestion that reinforced an experience with another podcaster
0: do you, uh, as much as i like editing those two separate audio files do you ever find it hard to like kind of parse through all that that listening like how long does it take you to edit a podcast
1: um i so i've gotten to be less of a perfectionist as time's gone by um and really the the big reason for that is Just hearing other shows and and recognizing that they're not perfect so uh, i'm worried about the sound i'm worried about it being relatively equalized i'm worried about you know cutting out background noise and if there's you know brain farts or something needs to be stitched together making sure that works but i would say i've i've got it down to hopefully under a half an hour per episode like i don't have to listen to every single word um which, you know, might be ill-advised, but uh, actually one of, one of the interviews I was listening to um, is a guy. He basically built this massive YouTube following, and it's all about, like, him testing out different cars. And it started with these really highly produced videos um, that took, like, days and days to complete. And then, you know, based off of um, the YouTube ad model, they're just paying you for the number of views you're getting so he realized more videos more views more money and switched over to basically an almost unedited like stream of consciousness type of video that's really you know much lower production value but he's getting many more videos many more views um and and what he said and this is just one of the ideas that have kind of stuck with me is that the language of the internet is quantity um it's much more about putting a lot of stuff up against the wall and seeing what sticks as opposed to over-indexing on like, I'm just going to make this one thing. It's going to be the best thing I ever did. And then when it falls flat, that's much more deflating. Whereas if you're just kind of continuing to try stuff and some stuff sticking, it was a relatively lower um, investment. And you're also just getting more reps. For me, it's for me, it's all about the reps with the show. That's why I'm over 200 episodes in less than two years, because I'm doing two per week. And I can't really afford to over invest on making it sound 100% perfect. Um, that seems to
0: counterintuitive. Yeah, it, it makes sense. But it just everyone's recently been in this like mode, like, I totally agree with what you said there. But everyone's in this mode of, let me move and make the greatest Content because everyone out there is just making trash. They're just pumping it out, and and more people are moving towards that. Like, I, I just I don't know. I, I feel like that's just two conflicting things there because everyone is doing just content, 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 and no one is really making quality content. So, I where where would you stand on that? Like,
1: I think that's a fair criticism, and I think that where the maybe distinction lies for me is much more about, like you're saying the content, but like the quality of the content to me is much more about the conversation and the guests that I have on and the insights they share, as opposed to, is there, does the mic pop at minute 12? Like for me, the the, the shows that I listen to, like I've listened to podcasts where like the guy recorded it on the mic on his iPhone while he was driving, but... <laughs> the lessons I was learning from it and his insights were worth it. Like I didn't care. And so that that's just my experience. So that's where I'm kind of building my frame of reference from. But that to me is really what's what's much more significant. So it's not that I'm not investing time. I let If I have 16 hours per week to allocate to my show, I would rather put more into the preparation before the interview so that I actually have some... Relatively in-depth questions that are nuanced and relevant, as opposed to asking some author for the 112th time, "Why'd you write the book?" Like, I've had guests say that they're like, "I am so glad that you didn't ask me the same questions I always hear, and that you actually did your homework and prepared." And that comes through in, in in numerous ways. You get a better interview from the guest. You for for the person who. So, like, here's another common trope with the, with the podcasts. You hear the same people on every show because they do their tour and they hit up all their buddies or their PR agency or whoever gets them on all these shows. And it's more or less the same interview on every single show. And there's there's a select few people who just have the talent to give different answers and really take it in different directions every time they're interviewed. But one of the things that enables that is a prepared uh, interviewer who has some unique questions and maybe has heard three other interviews and wants to build off of those or perhaps take it in a different direction because he heard the same canned response three different times. And and I do that. Like I interviewed a guy last night who has a PR agency. He's literally done thousands of interviews. And I heard this same little refrain every single time. Uh, that's like his, you know, his byline, you're basically like a politician. You have your like talking points that you're trying to hit. And so my whole goal was how can I, I'm going to take one of his bylines that I know he's going to give and I'm going to hold on to that and I'm going to drag it deeper into what he really means and not be on the surface level. And I would rather do that. I would rather take the time to invest in getting that answer than invest in... The same amount of time to maybe take the audio quality from a seven point five to an eight point five, or or whatever. So you're
0: that you're be. still saying though that it it is about quality of the content. It's not so much of the production value, but the quality of the content. Still, yeah, it, it's I like mean, the questions that go into it and everything. Yeah, it, it, it's
1: it's everything it's simultaneously everything in that specific thing so it's a bit of a, a contradiction but to me it's that quality conversation first and then as i continue to grow and can like invest in some someone else to do the editing who's better at it than me um that that improves as well and, and it continues to rise and one day there's a studio and all this other stuff but at its core like you take it take it to either extreme if you were if one show had amazing conversations, but subpar sound quality and wasn't really edited together in a great way. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you had something that's amazing sound quality, perfectly edited, but like, they, it's just the dullest conversation. Like they're talking about um like the minutia of insurance law, which, you know, quite frankly, I think we could agree isn't isn't particularly compelling. Which one are you more likely to listen to, right? You're more likely to listen to the compelling conversation, even if it's a little hard to process neither are ideal i want to have good audio quality up to a certain point but to me it's still really about that conversation
2: yeah it's all essentially like a compromise but you want to value the quality of the content above everything else because that's what your listeners are coming to listen to yeah
1: absolutely
0: um with your podcast then you, you have to use Facebook. You have to use Twitter. Do you use like Instagram or like what, what social networks do you use to connect with your audiences?
1: Well, I'm on them all because I just kind of take the fundamental belief that good brand, uh, good branding is like SEO for people's brains. So, you know, if, if I'm top of mind, whether that's because someone follows me on Instagram or Twitter or is on the Facebook page or LinkedIn, whatever it may be, I'm trying to just build a general... Um, ability to be top of mind for them when, when someone thinks podcaster, I want them to think Aaron Watson first, which is really, really hard. Cause there's a ton of great podcasters out there, uh, other great shows like this one, but at least be in that conversation. Um, so I'm actively, you know, keeping those profiles updated. It's hard to say which has been the most effective route for me. It's actually much more dependent upon the guests that I have on and where their presence is most salient. So I've had, um, interestingly a couple a couple women with really strong facebook presences who have come on the show and you know promoting on facebook has been what really works th- there uh we've other people you know 70,000 twitter followers and they just click it out and immediately you know just see a rush of traffic from there instagram uh is obviously tougher because you can't link out uh but i do have in my um like profile page, Aaron Watson fifty nine on Instagram. Um, there's like a little link that you can feature, and I made that link my top uh, podcast episodes because I'm I'm feeling like there's generally more new people coming across me on Instagram versus some other platforms, and hopefully kind of directing them to like put my best foot forward, see some of my biggest interviews um, as kind of a first touch point.
2: Yeah, me being new to you and the podcast, I um, actually found that page to be super useful. I think it's a great idea that more podcasts actually should do because if I come across a podcast, I want to know, okay, why why should I listen to this? What are, you know, what, what like for you it would be interviews. So I want to see kind of some of the people that you interview and I just see like a bunch of different people from um, different industries. So it helps me get a better grasp of what to expect in future content. Um and on that, I actually have a question in terms of um, you interviewing people from so many different industries. Um, how do you manage to like keep the audience interested? Because I feel like with a podcast, someone's you know subscribed to it, they download every episode. But let's say they're not interested in Ultimate Frisbee, for example. Um, but you have someone that you're interviewing that's you know from Ultimate. Um, do you find that there are less listeners for certain episodes? Like, how do you kind of manage that? Um, divide in in the industries?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the classic 80-20 principle applies here. There's a a small amount of episodes that have driven a massive amount of downloads for me relative to the rest. So there's definitely, there's always going to be a distribution um, when you're making stuff like this. And I fully acknowledge that there's, you know, it's a pretty eclectic group of topics that probably isn't salient to everyone. Um, But the other thing I kind of track is podcast listener behavior. And what's really common for a heavy podcast user is they're subscribed to a bunch of shows, and every you know day or weekday, a bunch of new episodes come in, and they choose you know what order they're going to listen to them in, and which ones they're going to check out, and maybe they try some and then delete it. But there's a big difference between um, being subscribed to a show having a new episode come in, deciding to not listen to that and just delete it without listening versus this episode came in and it was so bad that I want to delete the entire show. I actually have found that Subscribers are relatively sticky if they're regular podcast users because they don't want to miss the next big interview that comes in. So there's there's plenty of people who you know maybe maybe frisbee isn't super relevant to them, but they love the interviews I do with finance writers, and they love the interviews I do with um, you know Pittsburgh politicians. I've had like the mayor of Pittsburgh on um, that kind of selection means that they're still going to be around checking in for those. And then maybe, you know, this is kind of like my own personal mission. Maybe they'll check out one or two ultimate Frisbee interviews and start to actually learn a little bit more about the sport and make it more relevant. Cause that's, that's really at the core. You you know, we started off this calling me an influencer and if I really am an influencer, which, you know, it could be up for debate. If I really am an influencer, then that, by definition means I could potentially persuade someone or convince someone to my point of view on things. And my point of view on things is that Ultimate Frisbee is going to be increasingly more relevant as the years go by. The American Ultimate Disc League is in the nascent stages of becoming an important, meaningful professional sports league as you see other sports like baseball, and potentially football, kind of hitting something of a, of a ceiling, and perhaps seeing some slow decay in the future as less kids are playing those sports, and that in and of itself might make the conversation with the venture capitalist who also kind of likes Ultimate, who decided to invest and in, you know buy one of the franchises, might make a conversation with him interesting. And and these conversations with the Ultimate Frisbee folks aren't super exclusively ultimate frisbee focused you know we're, we're talking about you know so, so you have millions of dollars and you chose to buy an ultimate frisbee franchise in um atlanta start that franchise and try to get it to profitability why would you choose to do that explain it to me that that conversation transcends the sport of ultimate Frisbee. That is business, that is kind of personal narrative. There's also strategy in there. Like how are you getting fans to games? And so at at its core, my belief is that if, if you really are an influencer, and, and you know, I, I experienced this with some of the other podcasts I listen to. When you're a listener, you're you trusting this person to put out compelling content and have good shows and have interesting people on. So as you continue to build a relationship with your audience, they're coming to you not because of this guest or that guest that's on, but they're coming because they trust you to do good work and produce good episodes. And with all the reps that I'm getting, that's really what, I, what I'm chasing.
0: I, I totally get that. Like For the most part, when I started discovering your content i um i would listen to here and there like some of my favorite ones of course are the tech and um the tech focused ones social digital media ones and occasional like finance i would be like okay this is kind of interesting I'm, I'm surprised um i know you did some episodes on um cryptocurrencies though like uh bitcoin and then i believe it's ethereum uh like that's like some like, very high minded out there. How did you like prepare for that? Like, you have so many topics. Where, where do you, where do you start for some of those? Because you can't be an expert in every, every one. So you have to like really research and do a lot of work, especially doing two a week. How do you, how do you manage all of it?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm just, kind of a vociferous reader at its core. So, you know, as opposed to watching TV, like I've usually got books open, blogs, all that stuff. Um, and and definitely, you know, put the time in, like I said, to research these topics. But also the the kind of fundamental assumption with an interview like uh with Ethereum uh chief operating officer Joe Lubin is he's the expert. Like let let me be the person who is much more um, closely aligned with the understanding that most of the audience is going to have, like like a majority of the audience is probably not even going to know what Ethereum is, or at the very most, like kind of have heard of it, know that it's a cryptocurrency, have a really kind of low level heuristic framework for understanding what cryptocurrency is. And really, that's where they're starting at, at maybe the very best. So it's almost all right for me to to ask the dumb question, to ask the simple question, because not only not only is that something that Lubin and the rest of the Ethereum team need to be able to communicate in order for their project to work and the vision to grow. But simultaneously, that's what's actually valuable for a listener. Like if I nerd out and overstudy and have all these kind of like industry jargon terminology ready in my back pocket, then... That's not really going to be particularly helpful because it's just going to be too wonky for most of the listeners. But if I can come in and, you know, still have the basic understanding, still have like the idea of like, I think these are the key points that we need to get to to get to understanding. But to be able to ask those basic questions that are probably on the minds of a lot of other people who are not familiar with the Ethereum project that is what's really going to be valuable. So there, there, there's kind of a fine line with the tech stuff, like similarly with the VR with Robert Scoble, like there's, there's no, there's no illusion that I am remotely close to his fluency in VR. Um, he has so much to teach me as well. And really like with the podcast, I get to educate myself and then the audience gets to come along for the ride and be educated by proxy. So, so I'm not super concerned in those areas, of being an expert, I'm, I'm happy to ask the basic 101 question because I know so many other people have that same question.
0: So after that Bitcoin and the ethereum interview, what what do you think of cryptocurrencies? like do you think we're going to use them in five to ten years, or is it just something that um, a few hackers are are hoping for?
1: Um, I, I think that alternative currencies are To some degree an inevitable part of the future i don't necessarily know like i i don't think they will be the ubiquitous only thing that people use five or ten years from now um i also really like Nassim Taleb's lindy effect uh principle which is you know however long something's existed it will probably continue to exist for about that long um and he uses that as a, as a frame of reference for why to read really old books and why stuff that's been around a really long time is probably safer, like he only drinks, um, I think it's like coffee, wine, and water or something like that. Uh, but as it pertains to tech in this kind of constantly changing um, world, and, and, and really that's the Lindy effect to just digress a little bit, is the counter viewpoint to a firm like Andreessen Horowitz that thinks that everything is changing. Um, that's kind of those two kind of, play against each other in a really interesting dynamic way um i tend to think that you know bi- fiat currency is going to continue to exist in some form or another um but really where it's where it's interesting is it's only growing like we've seen bitcoin go from i mean obviously like pennies to less than a hundred dollars to a couple hundred bucks and now it's over a thousand with you know you can argue over what the future is going to be It's over a thousand now, and it seems to continue to have this upward trend. Ethereum has a very similar potential to it. Uh, So it's going to be relevant in some form or another. And once again, it just kind of comes back to the idea of fluency. If you don't understand how it works, if you don't have a way of fitting it into your more general worldview, then you're going to, at the very least, miss out on the opportunity and perhaps be hurt from an opportunity cost standpoint of investing some time and understanding that. Um, so I, I think it's going to be relevant. I also think what, what, what to me, kind of fundamentally is really, I don't know, maybe not compelling is the right word, but interesting and, and something people don't always think about is the Starbucks app which kind of seems like a non-sequitur but they have you know masterfully created this app that everyone uses when they go to Starbucks because they want the stars and the free drinks and the birthday drink and all this other stuff and Basically have created their own kind of version of Starbucks currency. People are obviously downloading it. It's it's, it's effectively a gift card, but it's gone much, much deeper by being integrated with the app and having this kind of behavior that's tied to it that they're teaching people and they're masterful at teaching these behaviors Um, and, and understanding that more and more businesses are going to try to copy that method of kind of almost taking your currency like there's really not a strong incentive to turn your cash into money that's only good at Starbucks and yet they've convinced so many people to do it that more and more companies are going to try to emulate that and have their own kind of version of currency for their commercial uses Um, and I I think on like a larger trend standpoint that's going to be probably more relevant in the short term but down the road, you can go.
0: Yeah, they're they're gamifying, like, the currency is like games have done it for years. And that's kind of how Bitcoin took off was they were talking how it was a decentralized currency, but also how other game currencies that were only good in certain um, video games were launching into like the stratosphere. And everyone was very interested in how that played into it. Just like Starbucks. They're gamifying their their own app, so if you put more money into it, it's going to become more lucrative for someone to continually buy at Starbucks over Dunkin' Donuts or or Shipley's or something.
1: And they have good coffee. Anything? Should
0: so- <laughs> <laughs> I have Starbucks this morning? Yep. Um, let's see. Um, so Twitter. So let, let's do a little Twitter. Twitter is changing, like. How their platform works. What What do you think about it? Because relatively, you're beholden to to Facebook and Instagram and everybody for distribution of some of your content.
1: Yeah, I, I obviously you're beholden, but to me that's kind of like a eyes wide shut thing. Like people who go into building a following on any social media platform that don't have the fundamental assumption that one day this is all going to change. And, like, I'm going to have to completely change how I'm doing what I'm doing to get distribution and get attention. Um, and don't embrace the fact that the attention economy itself is just getting more and more competitive. Um, the, the key with all these changes for me is just kind of coming back to what can I control and what can't I control. Um, I, I spent, honestly, zero time, you know being upset or mad that like now I have to try to boost a post to get people to actually see it or, you know, start a Facebook ad to actually show up in people's timelines and whatever. I, I didn't spend any time, you know, being upset about that. I just kind of moved on to, well, where else can I be more effective? Um, I've tried to really trying this year to double down on collecting email addresses, building the newsletter up um, and and connecting with people in that way. Because once again, that's kind of a Lindy effect principle where uh, you know, you constantly hear, "Well, Slack's going to kill email, or Facebook Messenger is going to kill email, or or whatever. Email is going to continue to be around. It's been around um, for decades. It's going to continue to be around in some form or another. So, if I can have that relationship established with an audience where they're used to receiving an email from me, opening it, checking out the links, then that is the foundation for um, a continued relationship in the attention economy." I, I really just kind of take it that way. Like, where can I still be effective? What can I control? And then almost try to, like, not spend any time fretting about these changes. But they, they are compelling. I, I, Twitter was due for an update. They were due for um, some updates. And, you know, I, I still love the platform. I still love consuming stuff there. There's, you know, accounts I follow that are invaluable that I learn a lot from. Um, similarly with Facebook.
2: So with that, like with social media, you know, you can't really have that reliance on just having all of your, um, traffic or audience come from social media. Like obviously, you know, you've essentially created like a loyal fan base that follows along you with you, um, no matter what platform you're on. Right. So kind of, was that like a big challenge for you to, create a fan base um kind of like and essentially my larger question is what are some of the challenges that you faced in starting this going deep with with Aaron uh, podcast like what are some some of the big challenges that you face <laughs> well
1: well there's a ton uh, obviously starting off like the struggles with sound quality and like putting out something that's any good um, the you know common, common refrain is refrain is that you're going to suck at storytelling when you start like storytelling is as highly developed a skill as there is out there. That's why we pay stand-up comedians so much. Um, that's why, you know, public speakers get, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. And so from my standpoint, it was, it, it was starting from how can I improve my skills? How can I build this foundation on which I can continue to grow? Um, and, and even kind of reframing the the fan base word and idea into scaling one-to-one relationships. So there's another principle I I I don't actually maybe it's just the ninety nine one principle, I don't know if that's necessarily what it's called, but the idea is 90% of your audience never interacts with you. 9% occasionally does, and then 1% is really actively interacting with you. Um, it's really hard to kind of activate and get that 90% to say anything to you or do anything, but that small minority that is actually you know, giving feedback or just saying thank you or sharing your stuff really doubling down on deepening those relationships and not see not even seeing it as like a, a fan celebrity or like whatever that 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 paradigm is in that is inherently ego inflating and instead saying like oh let me check out this person and like who, like let me really study these people who are resonating with what I'm doing, what are the common themes? Like how can I help these people even more accomplish what they're trying to do and, and be interesting and compelling to this cohort? Um, so, so you know, examples of that have been like literally listeners of my show, multiple listeners of my show, have ended up coming on as guests because they come and, you know, either through my research or them pitching me or just, you know, getting to know them, shaking their hand, talking to them. I find a compelling story that I want to continue to share with the audience and so you know you can take that to in two directions you can talk about like genuine friendships and enjoying people's company and learning from them or you can take it in the direction of just like raw unflinching um like utilitarian view the utilitarian is like well i'm you know deepening the relationship like like people who read how to win friends and influence people and only take it for like how to sell at its core that type of viewpoint of like, well, how can I like manipulate and influence and get them to like me even further? And then there's the other direction of just like, I think it's really cool that someone came across me because I interviewed Barry Ritholtz. He started to check out more episodes and, you know, now loves the show and was inspired by the show to start his own blog. And then after he started his own blog, reached out to me to to tell me about it because he was so excited Cited me like on his website as one of his influences. And then I find out that he's, uh, he was like a, a chess prodigy. Uh, I'm going to like a chess master at the age of 13 or something like that. And that's like then a skill that he's applied and taken with him into other professional endeavors. It's like, to me, that story at its core is just super cool. Like it, like it's completely humbling that that could even happen. And so celebrating that and just like getting to know more about that person and breaking that apart to find actionable lessons for other people is really what's most compelling to me. Um, as as opposed to seeing it as like, well, these are my fans and they'll follow me wherever I go. It's much more about like, how can I be entertaining? How can we connect? How can we have fun? Like
2: cherishing those close relations that you have as opposed to just like, Oh, it's just numbers. Like,
0: Oh, how many subscribers you have or whatever. Right. And starting conversations more than anything. Yeah. Um, Aaron, you want to tell them where they can find you from your website to your podcast to your socials?
1: Sure. Absolutely. So if people, I mean, obviously people who are listening to this are podcast listeners and they're very dedicated if they fought, they stuck with us all the way to the end. Um, so if they're looking for other great episodes to fill, you know, when they're going to the gym or they drive to work, um, they can head over to com slash top, which is that page that we referenced that features some of my most popular episodes. Um, it's kind of segmented into different groups so you can kind of find what you're looking for. Um, and then additionally, I'd love to connect on social, uh, both Instagram and Twitter, Aaron Watson 59 is the handle, um, Aaron underscore Watson on Snapchat, going deep with Aaron on uh, on Facebook. But, but genuinely, what I would encourage people to do is to be that 1% of actually actively interacting because a ton of amazing stuff happens when you are actually connecting with people and using the digital tools at our disposal to lead to... In real life, connection making—that's that's another big theme for me. So whether that's with me or whether that's with Sunny and Leon, um, I would encourage you to actually reach out and give some sort of feedback, or connect, or make some sort of genuine connection as a result of this episode. If you just want to say, "Hey, um, hey guys, never have Aaron on again. He is so annoying. Like, please just delete this episode." Then do that. Like, message them, but actually share your voice because most people underestimate particularly in this kind of intimate digital world how much of an impact they can have on outcomes and and this this type of conversations that happen so i would encourage people to actually you know step up and say something if you want to connect with me direct message on twitter instagram wherever you know how to use technology i I think that's the most important takeaway i would give for people
0: all right aaron thank you so much um so for the listeners, if you really like this, we'd appreciate you guys going and liking or giving us five stars on iTunes. Tell us uh, what you thought. Stars. Ooh, sorry. <laughs> six <laughs> stars on iTunes. Tell us if you like this interview. We're testing out a new style. Um, also, follow us on Instagram, uh, Snapchat, Twitter, Facebook. We're all digital bounds. Of course, Aaron's on Twitter as it's er- at AaronWatson59.
1: Yep. And Instagram.
0: Perfect. Um sunny, sunny, sunny sing IO, I'm Leon Hitchens, and I think that's all we got next week. Uh see you guys later. Bye. Bye.